We'd Like a Word. You're listening to We'd Like a Word. This is part three of our episode on writing history with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And our guests are the diplomat, politician and historian Shashi Tharoor and the prolific historian of India, William Dalrymple. And we want to get back to how history is changing or the writing of history is changing. So one of the odd things about Shashi Tharoor is when he was a government minister, he pioneered the use of social media to get his message across before it was so fashionable. And I think he was one of the most followed, although not anymore. So this is, you know, long pre-Trump. I asked him a bit about the evolution of telling history and sharing history, how that's been evolving. How do you think the telling of history has changed in the era of social media? And very quick responses and I suppose the democratisation of the ability to get one's opinion across across the world. Yes, but with, with, with no, no room for nuance. So social media has definitely made all sorts of issues far more publicly, has made people far and, and more you aware. were a bit of a pioneer in social I media was in indeed, India. but not so much about history. I, I was a pioneer. In fact, were you the most followed person in India until for, um, the current prime minister? Yes, uh, but I was the most followed politician until the current prime minister in 2013. And I was the most followed person until I think I was overtaken first by the cricketer Sachin Tendulkar and then by a whole bunch of movie stars led by Shah Rukh Khan. So looking back on it, I sort of think that, you know, there's some advantages to being an early adopter. But, you know, my heyday was uh, between about 2009 and 2013. In terms of what I sought to do, I was trying actually initially as a minister of the government of India and subsequently just as a politician to democratize uh, awareness of, of the people who are making these decisions that affect people's lives or doing things on behalf of people without being sufficiently accessible to them or accountable to them. And I thought social media gave me an opportunity not only to bypass the stuffy processes of governance, but also of the, the, the gatekeepers of the media who um, would otherwise, you know, be a big filter, would choose what was important, would limit how much. I mean, I remember, for example, I'd gone to uh, Liberia. I was the first Indian minister to visit, other than a single minister 50 years previously who had stopped by on a Sunday on his way through the airport. I was literally the only Indian minister to visit, but who in India was interested in an Indian minister visiting Liberia, or similarly the first one to visit Haiti after the earthquake there? But by tweeting, I was able to tell people why I was there, what I was trying to do, what the issues were coming up, and make them have a sense of of, of what was going on in a way that the media might not otherwise have covered. And some newspapers carried stories about my visit based entirely on my tweets because there was no journalist accompanying me. But there, I thought, was was a useful contribution to opening up awareness of Indian uh, public life. Since then, of course, it's multiplied. In fact, Mr. Modi now has instructed his cabinet. You join his cabinet, you have to have a social media account or open one immediately. He, he's such a strong believer in social media. That's a bit like being an author then, isn't it? Having to... <laughs> Have a social media account. Promote, when, uh, yeah. promote, promote. I mean, I know when um, I'm, I'm just trying to pitch a new book at the moment. It's like my agent said, said you get three, you get asked three questions. Why this book? Why now? And why this author? And what they expect from the, the answer to the third question is because they've got a squillion followers on Facebook, you know, or um, or they've been on Mock of the Week or something. We kind of revel in hating social media and Twitter. It's a cesspit of extreme views and, and a time suck. But I was talking to the front woman of British indie band Lush, the singer Mickey Berenyi, and she was saying that 
back when people, the music press, like Enemy and Melody Maker, were printing things about her, she felt they're saying, you know, unkind things, possibly inaccurate things, and she didn't really have a way of fighting back or putting her side of the story because it was in the days before social media. So I guess if you're in the public eye, you might welcome that ability to bypass the media not necessarily yeah. in a bad way. Well, it's been it's been my considered opinion, and it can only be an opinion that that social media only really seems to work for people who are in the public eye anyway, in terms of both selling to an existing mm. audience and also being able to put a, put a, over your own story without going through the sort of filter of a reporter or mm. you know and bias and things like that. And but beware if you're not in the public eye and you you kind of accidentally step in. Via yeah, yeah, that, that can be very difficult, and I, I think for certainly for authors selling books, it's it's. I'm not sure if you're an unknown author, you're not a well-known name. I'm not sure social media is as powerful as some people believe. I remember seeing an analogy recently for um, trying to sell your book by social media. It said it's rather like flying in a plane over a city, throwing thousands of your books out of the plane and hoping that some of them land near people who might want to read them. He said, that's a bit what it's like. You're just sort of throwing out, please buy my book into the wind. I this was a, walking along the street wondering f- what book to read next yeah. and then suddenly it hit me. Yes. Ah, <laughs> on the head, proper great height. Yeah, it's kind of very ephemeral. You know, a tweet goes out there and it's lost immediately in the flood. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I suppose that we use it to influence people and history is is not just about the past, obvious thing to say, I guess. It's, it's a weapon, used as a weapon to shape the future and I asked Shashi about that idea of, of history as a tool or a weapon. One of the features of life and politics in India at the moment, and I dare say in other parts of the world, seems to be arguably the hijacking or revising or recruitment of history to serve current political ends, and perhaps that's never been any different. I don't think it's ever been different at all. In fact, um, perhaps at this moment we're seeing more of it because of the nature of the moment. There's there's enormous rise in ethno-nationalism. Everywhere, whether it was Trump in America, Erdogan in uh, in Turkey, Urban in Hungary, and of course you've got Le Pen in France, and the equivalents in in Austria, Netherlands, Germany, and so on. You've got Brexit in Britain. It's all about the rise of a certain nativism, which asserts that it is more authentic and more rooted and more anchored in the realities of a particular society, culture, religion, and identity than the rootless cosmopolitans who've been dominating discourse. Now, how do you establish that authenticity? By harking back to history as well. So Erdogan has this view of this glorious Turkish Islamic past. Orban, of course, evokes the greatness of Hungary. Trump, make America great again, because it had been great in his view and had been made ungreat by the liberals. Or the Brits saying, you know, we're being assimilated into this Europe that's giving us a mushy identity, we need to be British again, and so on. So you've got this reassertion, and for that you need history. Narendra Modi in India is talking about the injustices imposed upon Hindus by Muslim invaders in the past. Now what's that about? That's also about awakening a sense of Hindu identity and pride. So you've got all of these things that have made interpretations of history more visible. But I do think that people have always looked back. I mean, even in the sort of sophisticated cosmopolitan era in India, 
uh, when Nehru wrote a book like The Discovery of India, where he had the sweeping understanding of Indian, uh, of Indian history, uh, which demonstrated its very syncretic nature and the contributions of people of various ethnicities, religions, and so on to the uh, glories of India and this ancient civilization that was like a palimpsest. The people had written over and over and over over the years, and now he was going to be the heir of it. And this was coming into its own with the departure of the British, who had also made a contribution to it. That kind of notion is also a telling of history. It's, it's, not, a, it's not history being used as a battering ram or a battering but it is history to justify a certain view of the present. And I think that's ultimately the telling of history by a politician or a public figure is almost never really about the past. It's about how you can use the past to depict the present and paint a vision of the future. So ethno-nationalist politicians and activists have no difficulty with this whatsoever, recruiting history. You mentioned Haiti, and you reminded me of a, a book by Irish film director Neil Jordan, which is out at the minute, called Lord Edward and Citizen Small, and it's about uh, Irish revolutionary leader in 1798 and his freed slave companion. And, and he kind of links uh, kind of French Revolution, American Revolution, Haitian, successful Haitian Revolution, with the unsuccessful Irish one in the revolutionary period. And... It, it's unusual in doing that and having black characters and in the centre of the story. And I wonder, are maybe you'd call them progressive politicians or activists anywhere near as good at recruiting history or drawing on history to put their side of the argument? Not enough. And as I say, they've been eclipsed to some degree in the, in the, the context of India, which is the country I know best. Uh, there's no question that those who, who interpreted history in this constructive, cooperative, pluralist understanding of India are very much now in eclipse because of the, the ethno-nationalist versions of history that have uh, taken precedence under the present uh, regime, if you like, of, of, of Hindu chauvinists who are in power. So it, it's difficult to point to the sort of thing. I'm fascinated by what you've said about Neil Jordan's book, and I'll look for it. Remember, it took him 220 years after the events he's describing to find these characters and dredge up enough about them. It's just like uh, if you want to look at a popular history here, Victoria and Abdul. I mean, the fact that Abdul was there as a servant to Victoria was well known for very long, but no one bothered to dig in, into it su sufficient depth in order to write the book that Shravani Basu did. So you can, or, or her recent work on, on this uh, Indian lawyer who was framed by the police and whom Sir Arthur Conan Doyle helped exonerate or win the exoneration for. Now, these are all episodes in history, but somebody's got to want to look them up and tell the story of them to reach a larger audience. And that, I think, is, is something which is still possible in pluralist societies. It gets more difficult in societies where one particular prevailing narrative is emphasized at the cost of all others. Shashi Theroux. Yeah, interesting. It's, it's funny talking about history being used to argue back your argument now because I mean first of all I mean hindsight is always twenty twenty, isn't it <laughs> it's like they could have done this they could have done that blah 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 but you know unless you're standing in that person's shoes at that time you can't make this decision. and you know there's also this idea that history is written by the winners you know and, and the sort of version of history that a lot of people my age and I'm 61 a lot of people, the history that we were taught in school is is now very different to the history you would read in a history book now because now well, people you, have, I wonder if, I suppose not being in school anymore, I wonder, you'd like to think that was true. I'd like to think it was true, yeah, yeah. But um, the whole history being written by the winners thing is, is a, an interesting thing because we, we've tended to sort of shake that off a little bit more in recent decades. 
and tried to look for the actual truth as opposed to the... I suppose the initial histories version, are yeah. kind to the survivors and the winners. But as time goes on, yeah, yeah, there's room for others. Absolutely. So I like the idea of Lord Edward and Citizen Small Book and Shashi was talking about Victoria and Abdul and the Indian Doctor. And there are these other characters coming to the fore. And I know some people, with whom I disagree, are suggesting that... Um, oh, this is all terribly politically correct and trendy, bringing in non-white characters as if it's pandering in some way, whereas it seems to be, to me, that it's more revealing characters who were always there. Oh, absolutely. But whose presence was overlooked or concealed. So it's it's not artificially placing people no, into history. No. It's it's just wising up and saying, yeah, okay, well, we, know we left fact, you out all along. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We know for a fact there's been a lot of whitewashing. I mean, I read something just recently where they were saying that if you look back at Dickens' time, proportionally, obviously the population of London was much smaller than it is now, but proportionally there were more black people there then in terms of percentage of population than there are now. So, you know, it's um, all right. Some have been freed slaves and things like that, but no, but not all. A lot of them were doing trade mm. and, and working with companies and things like this. But, you know, it, it's... It's one of those things that because history, as I said, it gets written by the people who are in charge. Kind of an image we imagine we want for ourselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. That's very interesting. In, in the wake of Brexit, of course, that's been very much in the news, this idea of, of sort of reasserting our Englishness. When the English generally are a little bit... It's very difficult because we're, we're not really any one particular race. We, I mean, people have their own assertions about what English is. I mean, I remember John Major once talking about, you know, a, a vicar on a bicycle cycling through the mist by an English church. That was his idea of England. But Ricky and Gervais... people drinking warm beer. Yeah, and... that's right. Whereas Ricky Gervais's version of England is, is a council estate with a bloke walking along with a, a bulldog and the bloke's got no neck and he's wearing an England T-shirt. And, you know, it's he said it's... It, it's your viewpoint, you know, what you see from your window is, is your England, your Britain. And, I think that um, was my, my image. I could be, on the one hand, Miss Marple. On the other hand, privateers and slavers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it, it's... Or I could also say my children. I think the British have always had that... Well, I say British, I'm going to say English. have always had that difficulty with their own identity. I mean, the fact that they don't even particularly celebrate St George's Day because they're a little bit unsure whether it would be seen as something bad. Whereas, you know, the Irish and the Welsh and the Scots and the Cornish, they're quite happy to celebrate who they are and what they are and their national day. And but why stop at that? I mean, everyone's welcome to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Absolutely. In fact, the English <laughs> do that, I think, in proxy of the fact they don't really celebrate their own saint. Although they did choose a saint who was a Muslim, of course. From Palestine? <laughs> From Palestine or Turkey. But then again, St. Patrick like was and who never came Welsh, maybe? Yeah, yeah. British and, in some way. Well, in Cornwall, St. Piran was Irish. Well... He got thrown into the sea by the Irish, tied to a millstone. So, um, and he floated miraculously across to Cornwall. Yeah, the only one. Well, actually, we didn't have Ryanair in those days. Well, that's right. The only one who actually came from the place he came from is, is um, Welsh, Sir David. He was actually Welsh. He was, was he? Yeah, okay. but none of the others came from where they claimed to come from. And St George never foot, set foot in England. How so boring so. of the Welsh to have a Welsh patron saint. <laughs> have they got no imagination at all? That's yeah, not even but hospitable. it does raise all sorts of issues about sort of identity. Because mm-hmm. I, I would think the politician's idea of what being English is is very different to what a lot of mm-hmm. British people think being English is. And if anyone listening has been caught up in interests, triggered, outraged, provoked, had their interest piqued in any way by any of what Shashi 
has been saying, or William, or even the two of us. Or us. Or the dog. Or the dog. I'm expecting him to start barking at any, no, any he's busy, moment. He's busy snoring looking out the window at the moment. So. You can get in touch with us by email. We'd like a word, although there's no apostrophe, so it's wed like a word, as in we would like a word. We'd like a word at gmail.com. So we'd like a word at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter. We'd like a word. Uh, although it's no apostrophe, so it's at, at wed like a word. word. Or Facebook. Facebook. Facebook, yes, well. I think that's probably wed like a word too. It is. And we've got a uh, website, haven't we? Which oh, yes. Is, which is www.wedlikeaword.com. I don't know. For conversations that are all about writing, you think we would have caught on to the apostrophe and <laughs> URL problem before now. But anyway... And we like to hear from you. So uh, whether you're in England, India, or anywhere else in the world. Now, I want to go back to the cocktail man, William Dalrymple. Your cocktail man. You get, invi- <laughs> you get invited to the party. So, <laughs> so he, he's, he's made a life and a, and a career out of writing history. And sometimes exciting times, a bit like that. I don't know if it's really a Chinese proverb, you know, may you live in interesting times. But he's had some interesting times, which he has survived. I was interested to know what he would say to other people who want to get into that line of business. What advice would you give to someone who wants to write history? Go for it, because it's one of the most fulfilling and exciting careers or or lives you can lead. You don't necessarily have to be a professional writer or, or a professional academic to dabble in it and, and write the odd article. But it, as, if you are wanting to do it as a career, it, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. But if the thing is you want to write history, that's a different career path to teaching history. No, I'm not, I'm not thinking of teaching it. I, I suppose yeah. with writing history, there's the gathering of the information and there's certain skills needed for that, including the objectivity you spoke of, which is also relevant to the telling of it but there are many academics who are as you've said not very good at communicating yes so there are many many ways to write history many ways to be a historian I have only the greatest respect for people that go through the route of doing a PhD becoming a junior lecturer rising up the academic establishment and teaching kids history it's one of the most important jobs there is out there there's a different career which is also open if you want to be a historian which is to be an independent historian living by your royalties and your and your earnings from journalism and and speaking which is the path i've chosen and uh, that has various pros and cons i mean i've only just this year for example become a bodleian fellow to have access to the amazing online resources of, of oxford university and can now easily access any academic journal at home, which I would, well, previously I couldn't do, I used to come here every day to the British Library uh, and, and use their stuff. Th- there are huge advantages in being attached to university, and, and the disadvantages are that teaching organizational side of the university department, marking, recruiting, and going through the whole daily life of, of a university takes nine-tenths of most people's time, meaning that only on sabbaticals can they really get research done, which is the the privilege that I have to, uh, to be able to just, you know, if I get a decent advance and I've established myself as a, as, as a writer who can sell books and, and, and commercially have a commercially viable career, I can come to the British Library more or less any time I like and dig deep into the archives, which is a terrific privilege. Indiana Jones and yourself aside, some people might mistakenly think of history as quite a dry thing. Is there a, 
a story from your history writing career so far and researching career that you would share that would counter that? The most difficult book to research, I think, of mine so far is one called Return of a King, which deals with the East India Company's invasion of Afghanistan. And while the English side of things, the East India Company side of things, is here in the British Library, largely, and in the National Archives of India, the Persian language accounts of those who faced the armies of the East India Company, often in the form of epic poems, but also in the form of biographies and, and memoirs, is still largely in diary in Afghanistan. And obviously, wandering around Afghanistan as a white guy in the last 10 years has, has, has not always been particularly easy. And there are degrees of discomfort. I mean, it's, it's normally has been for most of the last 10 years fine to be in Kabul, for example, but more difficult to be in the rural countryside. And there have been various other places that have been very, very difficult to visit. And one of these was Kandahar. But I did have to go there because it was a major part of my research. I needed to know what it looked like, how it felt. And I also needed to... Uh, I also needed to... Um, Emily, thank you so, 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 so... so, so, I didn't realise we were being live interviewed, sorry. Not live. Yeah, definitely not live. Have that fun. You asked the second Where was it? Somewhere in the house. Absolutely anyway. priceless notes for my yes. the whole first few chapters of my book, which I managed to leave at oh, kite, no. kite yesterday. Brilliant, Emily just found. So I had to. Oh my gosh, that uh, one of the perils of being a historian, it's losing your notes. Who could you be to take it and leave it in the festival? But anyway, going back. Back to Canterbury. I had to go to Kandahar because not only is it a major scene of, of the actions, and I, and I find it very difficult, I think it's very dangerous to write about a, a place that's prominent in your narrative without actually having been there, because it can feel and look and be very different from how you imagine it from reading other people's accounts. But also there were manuscripts there I needed to find. And I went looked after by a security company which I'd been put in touch with that, that had worked with Rory Stewart's Turquoise Mountain Agency. And they were, they were a professional security company. I was, I was in very, very safe hands. But thank God I was with them because on the way out of the airport, not, I think, particularly aimed at me as a historian or anyone knew who the hell I was, just happened to be a white guy in an in a, in a official-looking uh, armoured car, and you're getting where this is going, a sniper shot aimed for the back of my head hit the car on the way into Kandahar. And had I not been in an armoured vehicle, I was dead. It hit directly behind me. But it was an armoured vehicle designed specially for these things and they didn't go through the bulletproof glass. Which is not the sort of problem you normally have gathering documents at the British Library. <laughs> that it, is a, it was a unique. disgruntled librarian who tracked you down. <laughs> that is the only time anything like that's ever happened to me. So it isn't normally that exciting, thank God. But uh, uh, I had to go, I mean, in Afghanistan, in the course of the research of that book, I had to go to all sorts of pretty tricky spots which is fun when it goes all right and you get out to tell the tale but there are moments when you sometimes another case was I had the crux of the book was the retreat from Kabul 1842 an army marches out of Kabul having been basically defeated by the Afghans and they're given safe passage back to India and it's midwinter and they think that they're going to be able to march back and two weeks having surrendered and, and lost their honor but they're going to be living and they're going to live to fight another day and they leave Kabul, and it's clear by the end of the first day that they're walking into an ambush. But their cantonments and everything they left behind is burnt as they leave, and they have nothing they can do. They have to carry on. And over the course of the next 10 days, every single one, bar a handful, get either killed, captured, or enslaved. And I had to see this. It's the main event of the book. It's the, it's the emotional crux, and, and there's no way I could have 
I thought that I couldn't write this really without making a good attempt at least at, at doing as much of the retreat as I could. But it is now in, or was that in 2008 when I was doing this, uh, Taliban territory. And so a fan who was the head of the Afghan intelligence agency, Amrullah Saleh, Amrullah set me up with a former Taliban commander who was from that area and uh, he was going there anyway that week so I sat in the back of his pickup and we got to his village Chagdalik which he hadn't been to for a couple of years and the whole villagers came out and slaughtered a goat and food was prepared so by the time that this was all done the place I wanted to see which was about 10 miles away the village of Gundamat where the famous last stand of the retreat from Kabul where the last British soldiers stood up and the wall of bayonets and were shot down one by one I never got there and I was pressing him and said please please can we? And he said no no just you know I have to see these people so we never made it we, and that night we went back to Jalalabad and we discovered when we arrived in Jalalabad there'd been a major battle in Gundamak that day and had we not been sitting eating lamb delicious barbecued lamb uh, we would have run into a major firefight so this is not my typical day of research but these are two unique events that I've never uh, thankfully had repeated but both of which have were scary at the time and nice stories to tell afterwards <laughs> yeah, well, they, had a, they had a funny side to it <laughs> that made the goat all the more tasty uh, William Dalrymple thank you very much indeed ah the funny side of attempted assassination <laughs> Yeah, happy ending for William Dalrymple, but not for the goat. That's extreme criticism and extreme feedback. The Mm. whole bullet in the windscreen type thing. But we reiterate, we'd just prefer to receive emails. Yes, please, please. Yes, that would be be very nice. Wedlikeaword at gmail.com. So we've had um, a lot of content, a lot of meaty, goat meaty content in this episode from William Dalrymple. And from Shashi Thoreau, recommend you look up their books. Yeah, it's quite interesting as well, actually. The um, I, was, I was reading a, a Shashi Thoreau uh, quote here, where he was saying that you know India is not, as people keep calling it, an underdeveloped country, but rather, in the context of its history and cultural heritage, a highly developed one in an advanced state of decay. <laughs> That's a rather nice quote. But it's this has all happened in the week when it's been announced that. In its 75th year of independence, India has now become the fifth largest economy in the world. It's overtaken the UK for its GDP now. And it's about um, to be the most populous, I think. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Any minute now, overtaking China. They're not doing too bad without us. That's what I would say. They're not doing too bad without us. So you're talking about rewriting history and bring back the Raj and bring back the... No, they're doing much better than they they were I don't know who is saying (laughs) bring back the Raj. Maybe people in England are saying Well, there are certain people saying we should bring back pounds and ounces and, and pounds, shillings and pence and things like that. There seems to be this hankering for the old ways, which frankly were pretty dire. A thing that struck me in reading books set, um, contemporary books set in India or uh, TV shows in India was that the outside influences seem to be American rather than British. It's yes, almost yes. as if, you know, obviously there's a, a strong relationship and the diaspora and all that sort of thing, but I don't know if they're hankering after those old days as much as looking to the future and new relationships and it might be this idea that the good old days are more celebrated in in britain than in india i think it's pretty true i mean the one good thing i will say about the british whenever they were abroad in the height of the empire good toilets you can always tell when you when you go to a country that used to be under british rule it's always got good toilets and good sanitation we're good at that you can go to some of our nearest neighbours in Europe. Nah, toilets are a bit ropey. But you can go all the way to Sri Lanka and the toilets are brilliant. So, you know, 
That's something we are good at. And on that happy note, <laughs> we've come to the end of part three of this episode on writing history with our guests Shoshi Thoreau and William Dalrymple. And I suppose it means it's goodbye from us and look forward to you joining us next time when we'll be talking about something entirely different. We will indeed. So from me, Paul Waters. And from me, Stephen Colgan. You've been listening to We'd Like a Word. Goodbye. Bye. Until the next time, you've been listening to We'd Like a Word. 